This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Thanks for joining me and my co-host, Alicia Jenkins, each week as we dive deep into a new case. By telling a victim's story and keeping them at the forefront of our minds, we're able to expose the monsters lurking all around us. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Today's case is a long one, so we're going to jump into it pretty quickly, but I did want to say that our co-host, my mom, is not with us today. She's on spring break for my little sister, so they're out of town, and I'm sad about it because I definitely wanted someone to sit here and talk this case out with me and rage with me because it is so infuriating. However, it might end up being a good thing for all of us because if we sat and discussed every detail in this case, it would probably end up being about 10 episodes. Like I said, this is a long one. I read a book on this case titled Mother's Day by Dennis McDougall, and it was an incredible book. I highly recommend if you want more information on this case. He worked with people directly tied to it, and he gave a very detailed description of kind of everything that plays into this case and everything that leads up to our ending. So with that, are you ready for today's case? In November of 1993, arrests were finally being made in connection with two cold cases that were now almost a decade old. The two cases had never even been connected before this. On June 21, 1985, Jane Doe number 660-785 was discovered in Nevada County, California at Martis Creek Campground by Hazel and Elmer Barber. The groundskeepers were used to throwing out others' trash that had been dumped there by lazy campers who just felt like being jerks instead of driving their own trash out to the dump. It was annoying, but Elmer was used to it. So he was not shocked when he comes across a cardboard box on his usual morning walk. But he is shocked when he opens the box to find human arms flinging out at him. He looks down to see the body of a young girl stuffed inside. She has dark hair and was so decomposed that maggots had filled the box. One year earlier, Jane Doe number 485884 was found on July 17, 1984 in Placer County, California, near the Squaw Creek Bridge. 45-year-old Mabel Harris had been driving towards Lake Tahoe when she sees a bright light radiating from between the trees. What Mabel didn't know was that someone else had already driven by and reported what looked to be a fire. Stephen Ziegler, a sheriff with Placer County, had made his way to the scene in the early morning hours and determined it was a small and isolated forest fire, likely from a strike of lightning. Since the flames were only two feet high and the fire was near the creek bed, he just wasn't worried. So at 4.57 a.m., he radios in to report the isolated fire. He believed it would die out on its own, but if that hadn't happened by daylight, then they would send the fire service down to do their job. So when Mabel stops her Ford pickup truck on the side of the highway, she jumps out to make a 
you know, the little trek towards the fire. The closer she inches, the worse the smell permeating the air gets. That smell, it was like something she had never come across before. She can't take another step, so she turns and starts sprinting back to her truck. Just then, another truck is coming down the road. Mabel is furiously waving her arms up in the air to get their attention. Robert Eden pulls behind her and she asks him to help her investigate this unusual fire. Robert is to the rescue because not only does he agree to help Mabel check it out, but he just so happens to have a fire extinguisher in his truck. So he grabs it and they head to the creek, where he douses the flames of the fire, putting them out. And this was not your typical forest fire. Below the flames, Mabel and Robert discover the body of a young woman, badly charred black. There's only one corner of her face that was spared, revealing her blue eyes and golden eyelashes. Placer County and Nevada County neighbor one another. In fact, they even share the same medical examiner. But these homicides were not connected until many years later. Both women would remain Jane Doe's for many years. It was Teresa Cross who was arrested on November 10, 1993. She's charged with two counts of murder, two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, and two special circumstances, one being multiple murders and the other being murder by torture. Teresa was accused of murdering two of her six children. One daughter was burned alive, while the other daughter was starved to death. But the story behind their murders is more horrific than anything your mind could ever imagine. And not only was Teresa arrested, but two of her sons, now adults, were also being charged with the murders of their sisters. I'm not so sure that charges should have been brought against these two men, but to understand why, you will have to understand where they came from and the unbelievable abuse they endured at the hands of their mother. Teresa Cross is an actual monster. In fact, her daughters weren't even her first murder victims. For that, we have to jump back to when Teresa was just 18 years old. In the summer of 1964, when Teresa is living in Galt, California with her husband Clifford Clyde Sanders and their son Howard Clyde Sanders. Howard was born on July 16, 1963, just 10 months after Teresa and Clifford had tied the knot. And the duo was married when Teresa was only 16 years old, while Clifford was around 21 years old. The decision to marry seemed to stem from Teresa's tough childhood. By 16, she was ready to break free of her depression at home and start her own life. Her childhood had not been picture perfect. Teresa Jimmy Cross was born in March of 1946. She grew up in Rio Linda, California after her family moves there in 1953. And this is a small town. At the time, it was full of mobile homes and families that were struggling to pay their bills. There's nothing wrong with that. We all have our struggles. But residents say that there wasn't much more than that. It's been described as a dull place, at least back at this time. Teresa had an older sister named Rosemary Cross. Their parents were Jimmy Cross and Swanee Gay. Swanee kept their home life going while Jimmy worked hard to provide what he could for their small family. And Swanee had struggled with her weight and her health. At one point, she becomes obsessed with cutting sugar completely out of their diet due to her weight putting a strain on her heart. 
and her marriage to Jimmy Cross on July 11, 1942 was also not her first one. She had been married to a man named Harry Tapp, and they had two children together, a son and a daughter. These two are Teresa and Rosemary's half-siblings, William Hart Tapp and Clara Tapp. Harry had worked for the railroad, but he suffered a tragic accident in a boiler explosion, and this accident takes his eyesight. Obviously, this was detrimental to the family's financial success. They would struggle until Harry died in 1939. And Swanee was embarrassed to be on welfare. She lived off the little money provided by the state. And the widowed mother had to move her and her two children into a converted chicken coop. Which doesn't sound like an ideal home. Like a chicken coop turned house. That does sound like things were pretty bad for her. So when she meets Jimmy Cross in the early 1940s, he had not been married and he had no kids, so they hit it off. By this time, Swanee is 34 and Jimmy is 37. So by the time they have their two daughters, they are on the older end for having babies. Their older sister, Clara Tapp, would take care of the two younger girls while her mom and stepdad would be at work, but she was charged rent by Jimmy Cross to live there in the home. Clara hated that her stepdad made her turn over all the money she made at her job. And her brother, William, he didn't have the same stipulations as her to stay in the home. Her parents looked at having a son as a much more important role than having daughters. Clara said she was so unimportant to her mom that she had never even given her a legal name on her birth certificate. Clara was only written in as baby tap. Claire wouldn't be added to the birth certificate until she was trying to use it in her 20s. She's like wanting to get a job now that she's an adult, but they tell her she needs a legal name. She can't be Baby Tap. And this is when she finds out and demands Swanee to sign and have this changed. And since the Crosses believed a son held greater value in the family than a daughter, Jimmy was obviously disappointed that he only had two daughters. He wanted to adopt William so that his family name could be passed down generations. But William was a troubled kid who was always getting into trouble for burglary, shoplifting, or stealing cars. Most residents around town could see him for who he was, which was a con man. But Swanee and Jimmy would excuse his behavior over and over again, enabling him to continue down this criminal path with little to no consequences for his actions. In fact, after turning 18, William starts a relationship with a 15-year-old girl. He decides he wants to sleep with her, so he thinks it's a good idea to drive her down to Reno and illegally marry her in an attempt to make having sex with her somewhat legal. Her parents were obviously furious. They have the marriage annulled and they almost charge William with statutory rape. But once again, he slips by with no consequences. Jimmy encourages his stepson to join the Navy, hoping that this will help him have a better life, but he would just end up being discharged for stealing. And then the same thing happens when he joins the army. The older siblings are out of the house before Rosemary and Teresa were too old, but Clara would come back to babysit once in a while. And she remembers that Rosemary resembled her mother with a larger and stockier build, while Teresa was a small and puny child. To Clara, it seemed that Rosemary was like the Cinderella of the family. 
She was constantly working around the home with little appreciation, while Teresa was doted on, similar to the way William had been. By the late 1950s, Teresa's life with her parents would change drastically. Jimmy had developed early-onset Parkinson's disease, becoming disabled. He even tried a brain surgery that was unsuccessful in curing his disease, and following this, he was unable to work. As his health deteriorates, so does his mood. There can be a rage that comes with a debilitating disease. He had always been a strict and no-nonsense father, but the air filled with more tension once he became sick and could no longer work, something he had devoted his life to. And as the girls started into middle school and high school, the tension between them also built. They could never get along. Rosemary never wanted Teresa around her friends, even though she's just two years younger. Rosemary simply just saw her as a pest, which, okay, like many children do this with their younger siblings. It is so normal. However, Rosemary's dislike of Teresa seemed to stem from a darker place, a place of jealousy that Swanee treated Teresa with love and attention, while Rosemary was pushed to the side. Their neighbor, Beatrice Howard, remembers Teresa acting very spoiled and selfish, while Rosemary always had a much kinder heart. As the golden child, Teresa was obviously close with her mom, so when 53-year-old Swanee suffers a heart attack outside of the Highland Market, Teresa's world crumbles. Even Rosemary's world was turned upside down. She had only ever wanted her mom to love her as much as she loved Teresa and Teresa was actually there shopping with Swanee after school when she collapses, just weeks before Teresa's 15th birthday. The trauma of watching her mom die right in front of her eyes sends Teresa into a consuming depression. Weeks after Swanee's death, Teresa convinces a friend, Janet Kelso, to run away to Arkansas. Teresa had a boyfriend and he came up with this super smart plan to jet off. However, they don't make it far because he falls asleep at the wheel and crashes the car. So the girls are totally fine. He's fine, but he does need stitches and they have to call the police because they've been in a crash. Teresa quietly tells Janet that she cannot tell police they have run away. But when Janet comes face to face with an officer, she cracks. The girls were taken into custody and placed into a juvenile facility before being taken home. Janet was in a lot of trouble when she gets home, but Teresa wasn't. Jimmy Cross was a shell of himself at this point, fully engulfed in his grief for his wife. Rosemary had taken on the matron role of the family. She's only about 17 years old and she starts working part-time, she's still going to school, and she's taking care of her little sister. But the rivalry between the sisters would grow bigger and bigger because Teresa refuses to listen to her older sister's directions. By the following year, Rosemary is engaged to Floyd Norris. This engagement was a secret because Rosemary had actually become pregnant. She miscarries soon after the engagement, but the couple is still like, you know what, let's get married. Even though Floyd is living at home and is also unemployed. On January 6, 1962, the marriage ensues. Rosemary's friend recalls nobody showing up for Rosemary, like Jimmy didn't come, Teresa doesn't come, and neither do either of their half-siblings. But this is because Rosemary didn't want them to come. 
the marriage was still a secret to her family at this point. And once Jimmy does find out, he forces the couple to find a place of their own. He had never liked Floyd. So they move out and they settle in the same town of Rio Linda. The couple would go on to have two sons, Joseph and Daniel, which Joseph was actually born the day after Teresa's oldest son, Howard. The cousins saw each other a little bit, but in adulthood, the sisters were never close. Floyd would always struggle with keeping a job, but Rosemary actually persevered through her tough childhood. She would get her foot in the door at a government job where she was able to move up the professional ladder quickly. She ends up providing a pretty good life for her family. And after Rosemary moves, the Cross's home is forced to be sold when the family cannot make their payments. Now Teresa is on the hunt for a man to care for her and her father, Jimmy. And this is when she meets Clifford Sanders, who I mentioned earlier as being Teresa's first husband, who she has her oldest son, Howard, with. And their relationship was toxic. I mean, just starting off with the fact that Teresa is 16 and he is 21 when they get married, like, that's not okay. She's still a minor when she gets into this marriage. But many of their friends remember that Teresa liked to hold the power and control in a relationship. They say she was often playing games with Clifford. They were able to marry while Teresa was underage because she convinced her dad to come with them to Nevada and sign for her marriage certificate. On September 29th, 1962, the couple is married, and the next two years would not be easy for either of them. I personally feel that both of them were toxic, both of them were super bad for each other, and at this point, Teresa drops out of high school as a junior. And then remember her friend, Janet, the one that she ran away with? Well, Janet recalls coming over to Teresa and Clifford's house for a sleepover. Why? Because the girls are still 16 and they want to hang out like regular teenagers, regardless of Teresa being married. And the couple only has one bed, so they urge Janet to just sleep with them. She finds herself hopping out of the bed in the middle of the night when Clifford reaches around to grope her. Janet writes this off thinking that Clifford must have been asleep and just thought that she was Teresa. But Clifford was known to be a player. He did always have an eye on the ladies. Clifford had been raised a farm boy and his manners seemed to be intact when he was sober. But when he consumed alcohol, his temperament would change. The charm would turn to anger and the couple would get into some pretty gnarly arguments. Clifford's older brother, Tom Sanders, recalls Teresa being jealous of his brother. The brothers were close because Tom also lived in California, where Clifford had moved to just earlier from Alabama. Tom remembers that his brother did like to party, but he felt that Teresa was the problem here. He immediately had a distaste for her, and he begged his younger brother not to marry her. But boys are going to do what they're going to do, is what Tom said. And Clifford was a hard worker who ended up providing well for his wife and his son. The family looked happy from the outside and they seemed to be going down a successful path for their young age. However, their fights behind closed doors were frequent. 
Teresa was obsessed with her thoughts that Clifford always had girls on the side. She confronted him almost daily, and she wanted control over his day-to-day life to ensure that he could not have any opportunity to cheat on her. She claimed that Clifford would brag about all the girls he could get, and when the couple would sip down a few beers together, the night would end with a physical fight. Teresa's high school friend, Esther Davis, remembers that once she married Clifford, things got really bad. Teresa had even come over to Esther's home once, saying that she needed to hide from her husband. And an old neighbor says the same. This is Martha Hoffer. And she said she had watched Teresa growing up in Rio Linda. And she also experienced a visit from her when Teresa asked if she could hide there. Other friends recall Teresa actually taunting Clifford into a fight when she would drink. You could probably guess that Clifford and Teresa's relationship was on again, off again. Clifford would often leave for hours or even days at a time to cool off. And after yet another blow up, Teresa and her dad, Jimmy, would move out of the apartment they shared with Clifford in Rio Linda. By June of 1994, they're now in a small home located in the dairy town of Galt, California. The issue this time was that Teresa was pregnant with her second child, but Clifford questioned whether or not this baby was even his. The tables have turned. Clifford is now playing the role of a jealous partner who believes Teresa must have a man on the side. Even after Clifford joins Teresa and Jimmy and Galt, the pair continues to argue. Teresa thinks Clifford is hooking up with other girls. Clifford thinks Teresa is pregnant with another man's baby. And one night on June 22, 1964, Officer Clyde Lee responds to the home for a domestic dispute call. Teresa says that Clifford had thrown her purse at the window and shattered it following a fight. She also tells Officer Lee that Clifford had beaten her afterwards. By the time police had responded to the call, Clifford was long gone, but Teresa was ready to press charges. So later that evening, Officer Lee comes across Clifford outside of an A&W restaurant. Clifford is arrested and he's taken to the county jail, but he's begging the officer to allow him a visit with his wife. Officer Lee is like, okay, she doesn't even want to talk to you, but I'll ask her. He was a little taken back when Teresa agrees. After the couple talked, Teresa informs Officer Lee that she wants the charges dropped. But the officer has to check with the local judge because he can't ignore the arrest warrant without approval. But the judge says that if Teresa wants the charges dropped, then let it be how she wants. Right in front of Officer Lee, Teresa tells Clifford that the charges are being dropped, but if he ever bothers her again, she will kill him. Just two weeks before this, Teresa had gone to the home of Fred and Isabel May. They are her neighbors. Fred worked with the police, so she confided in them that she was being abused at home. She shows them bruises on her wrists and her ankles, and Fred encourages Teresa to report her husband to the police station. This is what prompted her to make that call during the next argument that got out of hand. Unfortunately, Charges were not pressed, and the couple does not stay separated. Regardless of this incident, the couple still decides to give their relationship another go. But obviously, things would not go well. Teresa continues with her rage-filled jealousy. She's controlling everything Clifford does. Teresa became so fixated on Clifford running off with another woman that she even told his sister Lydia that she would shoot him before she ever let another woman have him. In fact, she says, quote, I've got a gun loaded and he better walk a chalk line or I'll kill him. 
Lydia was shown evidence of Teresa's temper when her brother Clifford shows her a bullet hole in the floor at a previous home of theirs. He said Teresa had shot at him during a fight. And this clearly would not leave a good feeling in your gut if you are his sister. Less than a month after the domestic violence call on June 22, 1964, Clifford celebrates his 23rd birthday on July 5, 1964. However, the celebration is short-lived because Clifford and Teresa cannot get along. Tom Sanders looks back on this weekend with so much regret. His little brother was supposed to come with him on a fishing trip, but Clifford decided to stay, stay back with his family for his birthday. Tom wishes badly he could go back and convince Clifford to come with him. The couple ends up in a heated argument once again when Clifford dares to ask Teresa if the baby she was pregnant with is his. Teresa did not appreciate being questioned. So with that, Clifford's hope for an enjoyable birthday goes down the drain. That night, he finally decides that enough was enough. He didn't want to leave baby Howard behind. He absolutely adored his son, but this relationship could not continue. It was exhausting and it was draining. He knew both of them would be better off without each other. So Clifford packs up a brown suitcase and a cardboard box of his stuff. And the next morning, he's going to leave for good this time. On the morning of July 6, 1964, Clifford gathers his things ready to end his almost two-year marriage to Teresa, but he never makes it out of the door. Instead, Teresa grabs a Winchester level action deer rifle that was loaded with a single 30-30 cartridge. She aims the gun at her husband, who raises his left arm in a failed attempt to protect himself. The bullet shatters Clifford's wrist, blowing it almost all the way off. The bullet then enters his chest, piercing his heart and lodging in there. It's likely that this bullet would have gone right through him, but it doesn't exit his body after being significantly slowed down by his wrist. After he is shot, Clifford stumbles backwards towards the back door that he had been standing by. He trips, falling onto his back just outside of the door, where he would take his last breaths. In this moment, Teresa props the gun up next to the back door. She grabs her purse and baby Howard before bolting out of the do door and to her car. Jimmy Cross had been at the post office on this morning, although he would later testify that he had been witness to his daughter's abusive relationship before. Since he lived with the couple, he confirmed that Clifford Sanders had hit Teresa before. He would also testify that the gun his daughter used to shoot her husband could not have gone off accidentally. The gun was usually in the couple's bedroom, and Jimmy knew that the safety was always on. In order to shoot Clifford, Teresa would have had to turn the safety off, cock the hammer, and pull the trigger in order to file the fire in order to fire the bullet. So, when Teresa claims that the gun went off accidentally, that simply could not have been possible. Once Teresa jumps into her car, she drives 100 feet down the road and she parks in front of Fred and Isabel May's home. She runs to the door, frantically banging on it. Their 11-year-old answers to find this woman yelling at him that she just shot her husband in the arm and she needs help. 
His dad, Fred May, was a deputy sheriff, so when his son wakes him up, he quickly throws on his police uniform before heading to the front door to find his neighbor, Teresa Sanders. She's screaming that she shot her husband in the arm. She keeps repeating that she did not mean to hurt him this bad. She didn't think the gunshot would do that much damage. She stays there inside the May's home with Isabel while Fred goes down the street to assist Clifford. But when he finds Clifford, there is nothing that can be done. He could see that Clifford has died. With this, he runs home and calls the police station, afterwards asking his wife to return to the scene with him. They both witness blood spatter and flesh sprayed across the walls and the ceiling inside of the home of Clifford and Teresa Sanders. Police Chief Walter Freyland meets Fred and Isabel at the scene. He would be the one to inform Teresa that Clifford had passed away from his injuries. The scream that came from her was guttural, and Isabel recalls hearing the screams from down the road as Teresa was hauled to the police station in the back seat of Chief Freyland's squad car. She was in so much distress that Chief Freyland decided to take her by the hospital first. He does this so that she can receive a sedative before being brought to the station for questioning. And regardless of the police force actually sympathizing with Teresa, they do arrest her when she is brought into the station because she admittedly shot her husband. Ultimately, she would be indicted by a grand jury on first-degree murder because they believe she willingly and willfully shot her husband to death. Three days after her arrest, Clifford Sanders' funeral is held. Teresa would pay for this with the life insurance she received as a result of her husband's death. And Judge Raymond Coughlin also allows Teresa to be escorted by deputies on a day away from jail so that she can attend Clifford's funeral. Which like sort of left me speechless. I can guarantee you if I killed, like if I was killed, not if I killed, I can guarantee you if I was killed, I do not want the person who killed me to be allowed at my funeral. I don't care if they know me. I don't care if it was my husband. I don't care if it was my kid. They can't come to my funeral if they purposely killed me, okay? I'm sure that Clifford's family had to be pissed. They already didn't like Teresa before she killed him, and now she's being allowed to be at the funeral like it had to have been a punch to the gut. So, anyway, Galt, California was teeny tiny at this time. The police force was basically just ran by two men, Police Chief Walter Freyland and Captain Clyde Lee. They were not equipped for a murder investigation, and honestly, they had a lot of pride in their little town. They loved that it was pretty much free of violent crime like this, and they didn't want the bad publicity brought to Galt. So when Detective Ed Garcia with the Sacramento Police Department visits the scene and suggests that the case be moved to the Sacramento Police Force, there were no objections. Teresa was moved to the jail in Sacramento before her first court appearance on August 4th, 1964. She pleads not guilty, and Judge Albert Munt schedules, schedules a trial for September 10th, 1964, with Judge Charles W. Johnson presiding. This judge had a lot of experience in law, but he had only been a judge with the Superior Court for less than a year. Prosecutor Donald Dorfman would attribute this to some of the awful calls Judge Johnson makes through this trial. And to add on to that, this time in California, 
It was not the norm to see a woman in the courtroom on trial for a crime. Honestly, it probably wasn't normal to see a woman in the courtroom in any capacity. So because it was far more conservative back then in California, the book I read, Mother's Day, with author Dennis McDougall, he says that in the 1960s, fathers weren't even allowed in the delivery room to see their children be born, and there were kids being suspended from school for having Beatles haircuts. This just kind of goes into play how the jurors and the judge saw Teresa. They pitied her. She was a young, petite, and pretty girl, pregnant by the time she goes to trial. Teresa's defense attorney, Bob Zarek, definitely leans into this image. When September comes, the nine-man, three-woman jury files into the courtroom. Prosecutor Donald Dorfman presents the state's case first. He calls Dr. Arthur Wallace to the stand, and this is the man who performed the autopsy on Clifford Sanders, and his findings did not match up with Teresa's story. She had claimed that this shooting was only done in self-defense. She grabbed the gun during an argument so that Clifford didn't grab it first. That's when she says he came after her. He grabbed onto the gun and a struggle ensued. She says that the gun fired by complete accident. But remember, her own dad will testify that there was a three-step process to fire this gun. Dr. Wallace also says that Clifford had to have been several feet away from the gun when he is shot. There are no gunpowder burns present on his body. There was also a blood alcohol test done, which indicated that Clifford had not been drunk that morning like Teresa had alluded to. It was a zero for alcohol in his system. Based on the crime scene, it was clear to Dr. Wallace that Clifford had been shot while trying to leave the home. David Bird was the firearms expert that testifies to the deer rifle being the murder weapon. And character witnesses, including Clifford's family, would testify to what a hard worker he was and how much he loved Howard. The prosecution also wanted to use testimony from Isabel May. That's the neighbor that Teresa had run to following the shooting. It's the same neighbor she had confided in about a month or so earlier about the abuse. So while, while Isabel did testify about Teresa confiding in her, she said that Teresa seemed genuinely distraught and that when she found out her husband died, she seemed just torn to pieces. But she also recalled an odd statement. On the morning that Teresa shot Clifford, she had told Isabel that Clifford was prepping to leave that morning. As he went to walk out the door, she shot him and she just didn't think the gun would do that much damage. This would mean that Teresa was lying about her and Clifford struggling over the gun when it actually goes off. But the jury never gets to hear this portion of Isabel's testimony. Judge Johnson did allow Isabel to testify about what Teresa had told her about Clifford, like being abusive. But the judge rules that since Teresa was not made aware of her rights that morning, the confession she made to Isabel could not be admitted as evidence. Prosecutor Donald Dorfman was like, um, excuse me, but Isabel is not a law enforcement officer. No rights needed to be relayed to her. So Judge Johnson, he doesn't care. He states that since Isabel was married to an officer, she was basically acting as an agent for law enforcement that morning. 
this was such an odd ruling because first off, Miranda rights were not even a thing at this time. It wouldn't come into law until like a couple years later. And like Donald Dorfman said, she was not an officer. This testimony should have been admitted. But as the trial progressed, it was clear that Judge Charles W. Johnson sided heavily with Teresa and the defense team. That innocent young mother look that the defense used was working. Remember the testimony that Clifford's sister Lydia gives where she talks about how Teresa made threats to kill Clifford before she would allow him to be with another woman? Well, the defense argues against her being called as a witness because she was called after the defense, no, after the prosecution had already rested their case. And then the defense goes, the defense rests their case, and then Lydia is being called by the prosecution as a rebuttal witness as the trial starts coming to a close. Initially, Judge Johnson says that Lydia's testimony cannot be admitted as evidence because these statements were made, wait for it, a whole one to three months before the shooting. Like, oh my gosh, wow, that was so long ago. One to three whole months before she shot her husband, she made these statements. It was too long ago. That's what he's saying. Give me a break. That is like right before she shot him. Like, these statements tie directly to what happened. But Prosecutor Dorfman is like me. He refuses to give up because he believes Lydia's testimony is relevant. So the judge says, okay, fine. Write me up some briefs explaining your legal reasoning behind bringing in her testimony. Ultimately, the prosecution is allowed to use her as a witness, but... When she comes to the stand, the jury is forewarned by the judge that Lydia might be committing perjury, basically saying he thinks she could be making it all up, which is such a weird thing for a judge to say before a witness even testifies. With that, Judge Johnson instructs them to only consider Lydia's testimony as a way to show Clifford's state of mind before he was killed, since he says that there is no evidence that Teresa actually made those statements. But Lydia would still tell the jury that she believed with her whole heart that Teresa intentionally murdered her brother. Now, the defense has a completely different take on the shooting of Clifford Sanders. Bob Zarek argues that Teresa had battered wife syndrome after being, quote, punched in the face, kicked like a dog, and burned with cigarettes. They say that this was not a case of murder, but a case of survival. Teresa was even admitted to the judge's chambers to remove her stockings and show him the cigarette burn scars on the back of her knees. She would testify in her own defense that she was fearful for not only her life, but for the life of her baby. The defense motions to have evidence admitted from when Clifford had stolen a car during his teen years. Prosecutor Dorfman says, mm, absolutely not. That was back when he was a minor and it has no relevance to his murder. But Judge Johnson agrees with the defense, saying that this should be admitted as evidence because he wants the jury to know what kind of guy Clifford was. Whatever that means, like, so weird. So the, I, this judge is wild. And I mean, if we're all judged off our teenage years, I would not be doing so hot either. So this is just outrageous. Anyway, even the police had 
that had arrested Teresa and they had testified in her defense about how frightened she was that morning after shooting her husband. A physician, Dr. Stanley Wittemeyer, testifies that he had once treated Teresa for facial injuries that indicated she was being abused. Even Clifford's sister, Lydia, would testify that she had seen Clifford slap Teresa once. But she also testified about how Teresa told her in a rage that she thought of killing Clifford with ant poisoning before, but since that would show up on an autopsy, she would just shoot him and make it look like an accident. During this conversation, Lydia says Teresa said, he's a man, ain't he? Why not kill him? A week into trial on September 17th, an unusual thing happens. The defense actually asked the judge mid-trial, mid-trial, if he would allow Teresa to go free on bail during the remainder of the trial. Bob Zarek says that this would benefit Teresa's son Howard because a baby needs their mother. Donald Dorfman is shocked. This does not happen. We don't let accused murderers out on bail in the middle of a trial. But Judge Charles W. Johnson is something else. So he actually agrees to let Teresa out on $4,000 bail. She was allowed to stay back in Rio Linda where she grew up and where a woman named Beatrice Howard, her old neighbor, is taking care of baby Howard. Tom Sanders sees red in this moment, standing up and shouting in the courtroom that his little brother was murdered by, quote, that bitch. He storms out of the courtroom, yelling that he is going to grab a gun. His sister follows him, screaming out, no, like, no, 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 please don't go do that. Quickly, the judge calls for a recess, and Donald Dorfman runs after the Sanders siblings. He tells Tom that he understands his frustration, he feels the same way, but an outburst like this could affect the outcome of the trial. While they're out, Judge Johnson tells the jury that Clifford Sanders' family were a, quote, unruly brunch and maybe as dangerous as Clifford himself. This judge is literally saying this in the middle of trial, completely out of line in front of the jury, but he doesn't stop there. He actually assigns two extra bailiffs to the courtroom and he allows defense attorney Bob Zarek to carry a loaded gun into the courtroom each day for his own safety. Bob would use this to put on a show. He would get his gun out each morning in front of the jury, and as he laid it on the table in front of him, he would turn back and stare at Clifford Sanders' family. As the trial comes to a close, Donald Dorfman has a bad feeling in his gut. Clearly, things were not going his way. He went into this trial feeling like all the facts were on his side and that it would be an easy conviction, but this was not happening. With all those unexpected rulings from the judge, Dorfman's confidence was shrinking by the time closing statements are given. The prosecutor ends by saying that not all murderers can look like the witch in Snow White. She might be a mere 18 years old, she might be pregnant with her second child, but that doesn't change the fact that she planned to murder her husband. Bob Zarek ends by saying this was a justified homicide done in self-defense. The danger of great bodily harm was present and imminent. Teresa only did what she had to do. After a 12-day trial, the jury took only one hour and 45 minutes to reach a verdict. 
Teresa Sanders is found not guilty for the first degree murder of her husband, Clifford Sanders. One juror would later say that he just, quote, felt sorry for the poor little bunny. The next day, she waltzes with pride into the prosecutor's office where her gun is being held. She looks at it and she says, this is mine, before taking it with her. Donald Dorfman felt ill watching her walk free. He felt like there was no remorse coming from her now that the trial had ended in acquittal. From my perspective, I'm sure that Teresa and Clifford's marriage was rocky. It sounds toxic. It sounds unhealthy. It wouldn't surprise me if Clifford was in fact abusive towards Teresa. I don't love that he married her when he was 21 and she was 16. I don't love that he copped a fill with her 16-year-old friend shortly after being married. And if I did not have hindsight in this case, I would probably believe that Teresa did have battered wife syndrome. But because I know how depraved she would become, I find it hard to believe everything she says. Her stories might just been a little bit made up. There's probably some truth nuggets in there. I'm not saying Clifford was the best dude on this planet, but I don't think he deserved to be murdered. And I don't think Teresa was in danger of him killing her. I think he genuinely wanted to leave her. I think Teresa was also abusive towards him. She was controlling. She berated him. She picked up her shotgun on the morning of July 6, 1964 with the intent to kill him. Had she not gotten away with murder back in 1964, then she wouldn't have had the chance to become one of the most abusive and negligent mothers I have ever learned about. Following her acquittal, Teresa moves back to Rio Linda, and on March 13, 1965, she gives birth to the baby she was pregnant with through trial. She names this baby Sheila, and afterwards, she meets a man named Lee Thornsbury. This man was a quadriplegic, meaning he was paralyzed from the neck down, and this obviously meant that he needed a partner who was dedicated to him and could help care for him while they're at home together. At first, Teresa seemed like the, this perfect partner. She doted on him while he spoiled her with gifts and paid for her way in life. But soon enough, Teresa started partying a little too often. She was out drinking super late. She wouldn't come home for days. And it became clear that she was just using him. So he cuts ties and breaks up with her. While they had been dating, Teresa brought her kids around his family a few times, and Lee's sister noticed how cruel she seemed to be towards her younger child, Sheila. The baby girl was constantly in trouble, treated like a nuisance, and just seemed unwanted. When the sister asks one time why Teresa seemed to be more harsh with Sheila, she replied saying, Well, my mother always favored one child, so I'm going to do the same. Now, we know Teresa was the favored child in her childhood like her mom favored her over rosemary so i'm not sure how she intended this comment people have speculated that as they went through their adult lives teresa was just jealous of her older sister because rosemary went on to be successful and live a normal life while teresa was pretty much a mess all of the time it had also been said that Teresa hated her daughter, Sheila, because that pregnancy is what led her and Clifford to have so much tension, and he questioned if the baby was even his. She blamed Sheila for the end of their relationship and as the reason she had to kill Clifford. Anyway, that comment rubs Lee's sister the wrong way, and she would always worry for Sheila after this. 
She was definitely right to be worried, but she could have never expected the hell Sheila would live through. Now, Teresa, she moves on to a man named Robert Knorr. She was actually already seeing him before her breakup with Lee, but now they get serious. At this time, Teresa's about 19, but Robert, better known as Bob, was still a minor at 17 years old. Soon after they start dating, he joins the Marines, and he is stationed in Hawaii before being set to head to Vietnam in February of 1966. Before he could head off, though, Teresa makes a visit to the island and lets him know that she's pregnant with his baby. This would be Bob's first child and Teresa's third child. The couple is actually able to get married before the baby is born because shortly after getting to Vietnam, Bob is on a bridge that explodes. He was lucky to be alive, but his body is riddled with shrapnel and the military sends him home. He has to be treated often for his injuries. He's in and out of the hospital. And Teresa was never sympathetic about these injuries. She would berate Bob about them and the time he had to spend in the hospital because of them. Through the Marines, he is awarded a Bronze Star and he does continue to serve in the military. So when Susan Marlene Knorr is born on September 27, 1966, Bob is only able to make a quick visit. Back in Rio Linda, Teresa is living life kind of as a single mom with her now three kids, Howard, Sheila, and Susan. She also has her dad, Jimmy Cross, living with her because with his Parkinson's, he really couldn't be alone. Bob would visit when the military allowed him leave, and just three months after Susan is born, Teresa gets pregnant for a fourth time. Now, regardless of her dad's disabilities and the fact that she's pregnant, Teresa would still go out partying all the time. She would still get drunk while she's pregnant, and she would leave Howard and Susan with her disabled dad. Jimmy would have to have little Howard help him care for the baby by directing him what to do. And yes, I do mean Jimmy was only home with Howard and Susan because the middle child at this time, Sheila, actually lives with some of Bob's relatives, Evie and Pat Works. The couple had babysat Teresa's kids and just helped out while Bob was away serving in the Marines, but they started seeing red flags in Teresa and became increasingly worried about her children, especially about Sheila. This would actually be one of the reasons that Bob's family ends up disliking Teresa and his parents actually feel that his marriage to her was the worst mistake of his life. Later, his family would find out that Teresa had killed her first husband, but was acquitted due to self-defense. The acquittal did not settle their fears. Bob told them not to worry. He explained the whole situation to his family, describing the abuse his wife had suffered at the hands of Clifford. He had always believed Teresa with his whole heart, until their relationship passed the honeymoon phase, and during a fight, she threatens to do the same thing to him that she did to Clifford. She would kill him if he pushed her too far. And with that, Bob started to doubt his wife's story about how things went down with her first hubby. Anyway, back to Evie and Pat Works. They're helping out Teresa while Bob is gone. And one day Evie comes over, she's picking up the kids, and she finds that Sheila has all of her hair shaved off. It's not like clean cut either. The baby has cuts all over her head from this. Sheila is only a couple years old at this point, and Evie is like, whoa, what happened here? And Teresa says that Sheila had her head shaved as a punishment, and she was so angry with Sheila that as she shaved her head, she purposely cut her. 
Evie gives a blank stare, and after a moment of silence, Teresa says that Sheila is lucky because she actually really wanted to stick the razor all the way down into Sheila's brain, but she just wasn't brave enough to actually do it. This would make anyone sick to their stomach, so Evie and Pat push Teresa to let Sheila come and live with them. They tell her that they can see she's overwhelmed and they just want to help. As we know, Teresa is more interested in partying than taking care of her three kids, so having one less burden seemed like a good deal to her. The time that Sheila spent at the works home was probably the only time in her life that Sheila felt safe or cared for. During the time that Sheila is gone, Teresa gives birth to her fourth baby, William Robert Knorr. He's born on September 15, 1967. She now has two sons and two daughters. Howard and Sheila, who were fathered by Clifford Sanders, then Susan and William, who are fathered by Robert Knorr, aka Bob. So shortly after this, Teresa decides she wants Sheila back from Evie and Pat Works. She thinks they're going to try and adopt Sheila, and that would mean that they would get her social security checks that she received from her dad's death. Teresa couldn't have that, so she makes up the excuse that they painted Sheila's fingernails, so they were a bad influence. Even though the works didn't have a good feeling about Sheila going back home to her mom, they didn't want to legally fight for the little girl. They were actually scared that if they did this, she might retaliate and kill Bob. So Sheila is now back with Teresa and her three siblings. After Bob's mom passes away, their marriage goes downhill fast. Teresa didn't like Bob's mom anyway, and it didn't bother her that the woman had died. In fact, she was pretty mean to Bob as he struggled through his grief. And now the couple starts fighting regularly. Teresa was usually making up scenarios about, what do you know, Bob cheating on her, the same way she had done with Clifford. I'm not sure if Clifford had cheated on Teresa. I mean, he was described as a player, but Bob claims that he was always faithful to her but she was always looking for a reason to pick a fight and she wanted control over Bob. He recalls that Teresa would use sex to get what she wanted. He remembers her as a cruel woman who almost never smiled or laughed. She kept having all these children because she liked the idea of motherhood, but each time she had a baby, she would grow more resentful because of what preg pregnancy did to her looks. She didn't appreciate her changing body. She couldn't see the blessing that it is to bring children into this world. So as Teresa's drinking and partying becomes more frequent and her relationship with Bob is in turmoil, he is still in the military, traveling back and forth between base and home. The arguments about Bob being unfaithful continue, although he says he isn't sure where Teresa thought he had the time to cheat between his duties in the military and his life as a father. He was working hard. He was tired. He just wants to relax. He doesn't want to fight about being with other women when he's not. So their relationship is on and off for years, just like hers had been with Clifford. One night she is supposed to go and pick Bob up from the military base, but he says he wants to take a quick nap, come get me in an hour, and she decides instead she's going to move out. Soon enough though, they're back together and pregnant with their third child, Teresa's fifth child. On December 31st, 1968, Robert Wallace Knorr Jr. is born and named after his dad. By now, Bob has left the military and is only receiving retirement checks. So Teresa starts working as a nurse aide on top of collecting her two oldest children's social security checks. 
And I'm sure you'll be shocked to learn that their relationship does not get better with baby number five. The couple continued to bicker, and by June of 1969, Bob Knorr has moved out of the home and Teresa files for divorce. She notes extreme cruelty as the reason. She states in the paperwork that she should have custody of her children because she is the best parent for them, claiming that Bob often threatened her with violence and would beat her once a day. But shortly after filing, Teresa and Bob are like, you know what? No, let's give this another go. We just need to move. That's the problem. We need out of here. So they pack up and they move to Spokane, Washington. They made this move because Bob had an old military friend living there named Duke. The two couples got together often to hang out. And while Duke says he never cheated on his wife, Carrie, he did find Teresa attractive. He says they had some sort of chemistry, but they never took anything further. However, Bob recalls coming home one day and finding Duke laying in his bed while Teresa was in her nightgown. He found it ironic that she was always accusing him of cheating and was very controlling about what he could do to make sure he would never cheat on her. Yet she was the one who would cheat on her partners. Bob realizes that Teresa was always projecting, accusing him of the things she was actually doing. During their time in Spokane, they were avoiding bill collectors. Their car even gets repossessed before they move back to an apartment in Sacramento, California. And this is when Teresa's controlling behavior just amplifies. Bob wasn't allowed to drive to work on his own, even though they had two cars. She also didn't allow Bob to watch any TV shows with women in them. She gave him a spending limit for his lunch, only 50 cents a day. He was locked down. And Bob thought Teresa was acting ridiculous. But Teresa was sick of Bob. By the spring of 1970, Teresa takes the steps to end the relationship once and for all. She's pregnant with their fourth child at this time. It would be her sixth baby. She loads Bob's car up with all of his stuff after dropping him off at work. She then leaves his car full of his things around the corner from his work. She writes a note, she gives it to her friend, sends this friend into his work, and this friend hands the note to Bob. It says that things are over and his car is filled with his stuff around the corner. They're divorced by July of that year. Teresa gets the kids and one car while Bob got the tools and one car. He's ordered to pay a couple hundred dollars in child support. And just a couple months after their divorce, baby number six is born on August 5th, 1970. She was named after her mom, Teresa Marie Knorr. Everyone called her Terry. Following their divorce, Bob Knorr marries a Hispanic woman named Georgia. And Teresa treated her horribly. She would call Georgia over and over. She would stalk her. She would yell out racist slurs at her. And she was just all around a shitty person to Georgia. Lacking the control of her children when they were at Bob's home with a new woman was not an option. So she refused to allow the kids contact with their father. The only time the kids were allowed to be with Bob and Georgia was if Teresa was present as well. And even with this minute amount of contact with the kids, Georgia could see that they were being abused. One comment that Teresa made stuck with Georgia forever. Teresa complained that Susan, who was only four years old, was already acting provocatively in front of her brothers. Teresa rolls her eyes while saying this, and she says she's going to teach her daughters to hate men. I mean, seriously, 
provocative at four years old, not possible. Not possible. You are the one sexualizing anything they do. Children are not doing that. Anyway, clearly Teresa has problems big time. And around this time, little Robert was just over two years old and he couldn't walk or talk. Teresa would say that doctors said it's because he's mentally slow, but that wasn't why. Robert wasn't thriving because Teresa kept him in a playpen for most of his life those first two years. She called Bob and Georgia one day saying that the baby was too hard to take care of, she needed a break, and they jump at the opportunity to take in Robert. So he goes over and he's there for two weeks. Georgia's mom had worked with him every day while the couple worked, and she saw huge progress in the short amount of time that he was there. They wanted so badly to keep Robert and help him thrive, but when the two weeks were up, Teresa refuses to let him stay any longer. She wouldn't allow Bob time with his kids until she marries Ron Pulliam, her third husband. To Bob, he seemed like a good guy, and with him around, Teresa was less controlling of Bob, so it's a win-win. To Terry, Ron was the only man she ever remembered having in her life. She was too young to remember Bob's fight for his kids in those first years of her life. Eventually, Bob did stop calling because the peace with Teresa only lasted so long. Soon, she was back to controlling him and his time with the kids. She would also talk badly about Bob and Georgia in front of the kids, and combating this just seemed to be too much. The kids will later say that their father was strict and mean and had issues and was abusive and that they didn't respect him because he left their mom alone with six kids. I mean, it was Teresa who packed up his car and left with the kids, and she was the reason he wasn't allowed in their lives, but Bob did say he struggled with a drug problem throughout his life and that he was a stern parent but he thought he did the best he could do at that time with the circumstances. He would later regret not fighting harder for his children. He thought ending the tension between him and Teresa would be the best thing for them. It wasn't long until Teresa's marriage to Ron also went down in flames. She was out at the bars most nights, always leaving her six kids back home. Ron knew that Teresa had another boyfriend and that this marriage was over when she just disappears for the better part of a year. Ron comes close to losing his job because he has to take so much time off of work to care for Teresa's children. He ends up filing for disillusion of the marriage in 1972. And a year later, he makes his way to Bob and George's home to let them know that Teresa is always gone. The divorce is finalized on September 27, 1972, but at this point, Teresa now wants to stay living with Ron. Terry remembers that Ron really loved her mom, but even as a little girl, she could see that Teresa did not love Ron. She was simply using him. Sadly, because he cares for her, Ron agrees to live together and try to make things work with Teresa following their divorce. But by 1973, Teresa makes the announcement that she has a younger boyfriend and she's going to live with him. This younger boyfriend is also named Ron, Ron Bullington. Even after this confession, ex-husband Ron helps Teresa buy a new house for her and Ron number two. Because Ron, in their divorce, had gotten their four-bedroom, two-bathroom house. And she was threatening him to contest that ruling if he did not help her. 
Zoe helps her, and she still has the audacity to take Ron number two to ex-husband Ron's house in April of 1973. And they steal a bunch of his stuff while he's gone. They take the refrigerator, they take his TV, and they also take his rifle. Ex-husband Ron is livid when he finds out. He knows it's Teresa when he comes home and all of his stuff is gone. And he obviously makes a police report, but they say it's a civil matter. So he files a civil contempt charge against Teresa. And guess who the judge is? It's our least fave, Judge Charles W. Johnson, the same judge that presided over Teresa's murder trial after she killed Clifford Sanders. Teresa says in court that ex-husband Ron only filed this charge against her because he found out that she had a boyfriend and that before he knew she had a boyfriend, he actually just gave her all of his stuff. Like she did not steal it. She says that the only thing she stole was the rifle and she had to do this for her safety because like every other husband she's had, he was abusive. Well, we know Judge Charles W. Johnson is a Teresa fan. So he finds her not guilty and she was allowed to keep all of the things that she stole from ex-husband Ron. And Ron was like, what is happening? He would not let this happen again. So he files a homestead document shortly after to legally report everything he owns in case anything more was stolen. Thankfully, Ron number two actually leaves Teresa pretty quickly because he was a mama's boy and his mom didn't think Teresa was any good for him. He listened to his mom's correct gut feeling and he moved back to New Mexico. Following this heartbreak, Teresa didn't let any man into their lives for a long time. In fact, she wouldn't let anyone into her home at all. Not just boyfriends, but even family. She starts becoming really secretive. Now, it's the same year that another murder trial is going on. On trial is William Hart Tapp. If you remember from the beginning of this story, William is Teresa's older half-brother, the one that always got away with everything, never faced consequences for stealing or just being a naughty teen. Well, on October 8th, 1972, newlyweds Jay and Viola Teresh come home from a night out with their friends. They lived just 100 miles north of Sacramento, and when they entered their home, they realized that their house was being burglarized. William had joined the Tidwell brothers in this burglary. He was in his 40s at this time. The Teresh couple had their throats slit so viciously that the knife left inch-deep cuts in the floor as the attack happened. Jay had been held on the floor and shot three times with a 32 caliber gun. Bullets entered his head, his chest, and between his eyes. By agreeing to testify against the Tidwell brothers, William would receive life in prison instead of the death penalty. William, at the time of this murder, had also been out on parole in 1972. He had been in and out of prison for his entire life, but back when Teresa had her first son, William had turned himself in after kidnapping and ra raping a waitress. At this time in his life, he was working at a slaughterhouse and his neighbors found him to be a sketchy dude. They even witnessed him string up a living cat in, front, in his front yard, trigger warning if you don't like animal stuff, because he left it there to die. 
This hurt him to see, but they were also way too scared of what he would do to them if they intervened. They often saw William beating his wife and being a nuisance to the neighborhood. It's these same neighbors that hear a frantic knocking at their door one night, and they see a naked girl there, desperately screaming for help. In the middle of the commotion, William comes to their door and starts to drag the girl away by her hair. This time, the neighbors do intervene, saving the girl while William jumps into his car and speeds off. Three days later, he turns himself in. Once he is out on parole, he is a part of this awful murder of Jay and Viola Teresh, and then he spends the rest of his life in prison. When his sister, Clara, gets the call that he died of a heart attack, she's asked what she wants to do with his remains. She knows her younger half-sisters, Rosemary and Teresa, won't want him either, so she tells the prison that they can get rid of William however they please. She's told that he found God in prison and was remorseful, but she says that she doesn't care because she only knew him as an evil, sadistic bastard. I mean... This doesn't directly relate to Teresa's case, but this is her brother. It's not likely that one family is going to have multiple psychopathic murderers in their family, but here we are. That leads me to believe that their home life was probably worse than we even know while they had grown up. And there's still one more murder connected to their family. Outside of the brutal killings that Teresa perpetrates onto her own children, We'll get to this other murder soon. First, let's talk about Teresa's fourth marriage to Chet Harris. He was a reporter who was 59 years old when they married on August 23, 1967 in Sacramento, California. Teresa was younger, just 30 years old when she marries him, and this was not a marriage of love. In fact, Teresa tells her children that they're lucky she's making this huge sacrifice to be with Chet, and she's only doing it so that her third child, Susan, can have a better education. Susan had always been naturally book smart. She tested at genius levels and always did well in school. So Teresa wanted to send her off to a more elite school but she would need a well-known man with money to make this happen. Teresa married Chet only three days after meeting him. He was around 400 pounds at this time, and he was a man that really enjoyed women, sex, and porn. He had already been married more than five times, and I guess his first wife had died on their first wedding anniversary... Uh, There wasn't more information there, but I do wonder if there is a deeper story to that. Anyway, Chet had naked photographs of his ex-wives at his home. This really pissed Teresa off, and when he wanted her to pose nude, she refuses. However, she would stay mostly naked around the home that her six children are also living in, and she tells her daughters that she has to stay naked to keep Chet happy. So their home is starting to become more sexually exploiting. Teresa was never happy in this marriage. In fact, she was reaching out to Bob Noor, her second husband and father to her last four children. She wanted to get back together. Terry doesn't think her mom ever moved on from Bob because Teresa had always kept his marine photos and other memorabilia of their time together. But Bob was out of the grips of Teresa and he did not want her back at this point. So she continues on with Chet, and he didn't seem to be very good to the kids. 
He had these little phrases he would assign to them based on what he thought of them. He called William the coward, Robert the killer, and Terry the little stripper. All of those nicknames, if that's what we're going to call it, are disturbing, especially Terry's. She was the youngest daughter and he called her the little stripper. Ugh. I hate it. It had not been stated that Chet was sexually abusive towards the girls, but it would not surprise me if he had been. Chet would call Sheila Susan's dog because she followed her younger sister Susan around. While Susan was intellectually advanced beyond her years, Sheila had somewhat of a mental delay. She was described as much slower than the other kids, but for the most part, she was a normal child. Susan was known as Chester's pet. He loved that she was so smart, and they would spend hours together talking about politics and other interesting topics. Again, he likely abused these children, and this, to me, feels like he was grooming Susan. In fact, Susan later tells her mom that she never had sex with Chet, but that he did teach her how to use her thumb and forefingers inside of her vagina to help widen it. He was teaching her this for when he would, quote, deflower her. So yeah, Teresa isn't a great person, but Chet sounds like he is also a scumbag that was a pedophile if these statements are were actually made by Susan. She's not with us to confirm that she ever said this, so I'm not sure how true the statements are, but I'll just go with it and lean towards something nefarious going on with Chet. Anyway, Chet had his own daughter, also named Terry. This is Terry Smith, and she recalls her dad being very nervous about Teresa sleeping with a gun under her pillow every night. So he's already on the edge when a friend of his his calls him up and this friend has a shaky voice as he nervously tells Chet that he was out drinking and Teresa was there and she ended up giving him oral sex. This made Chet realize that his quickie marriage to Teresa was a mistake. I'm sure he realized by now that she was using him. So three months into their marriage, he's like, hey, you're out of here. We're getting divorced. In this divorce, Teresa files an affidavit on November 22nd, 1976, claiming that the only reason Chet kicked her out was because she refused to pose nude for him. She says that she was tricked and manipulated into marrying Chet because he said he would add an addition onto his house that was for her children. She says now that it turns out this addition to the home was for immoral purposes and not for the kids. She also claims that during their time together, he sold $1,000 worth of her personal property. Teresa actually tried to hire Donald Dorfman as her attorney. She shows up and tells him that she liked the way he came after her in her murder trial, so she wants him to represent her now. If you remember, Donald was the district attorney that prosecuted Teresa in the murder trial for Clifford Sanders. He was like, yeah, absolutely not representing you. I mean, her trial was huge for him. After that, he left being a prosecutor and decided to become a defense attorney because he literally got so railroaded as the prosecutor and the judge was so much on the defense's side. He just thought it's better off to be a defense attorney and he would become a well-known and good defense attorney. But he does not want to work with Teresa, obviously. He 
thought she was a terrible person. So he refers her to another attorney, but she lists him on the affidavit anyway. The judge that rules on the divorce is none other than Judge Charles W. Johnson. He's back again and, of course, ready to rule in Teresa's favor. He awarded half of Chet Harris's home to Teresa. Chet actually has to take out a loan to buy back her half and keep his home. Oh, and one of the jurors from that murder, murder trial is the person that signs off on this judge's ruling in Teresa's divorce to Robert Knorr and again in the divorce to Chet Harris. Small town, small world. They kind of all know each other. Thankfully, Judge Charles W. Johnson decides to retire soon after this because he had been accused of favoritism and bias for his friends in the community. Surprise, surprise. So, following the divorce from Chet, Teresa's abusive tendencies towards her kids amplify rapidly. She became more secretive than ever. She basically disappeared, and Bob Knorr had no idea what was going on with his kids after this. One of her sons said, quote, I grew up in an insane asylum, but what's worse is I didn't know I was growing up in one. In an episode of Evil Lives Here, titled The Face of My Torturer, William Knorr recalls thinking that all kids grew up the way they did. They knew no different, and as they got older, their mom kept them very closed off from the outside world. They were never allowed to go into friends' homes, so in their mind, the way Teresa acted was just how mothers acted. Sadly, this is what they thought love was. It's ironic because Teresa always talked to her children about how important family was, how the family unit was to be kept strong. To them, they always believed her fam believed that to her family was the most important thing because she would explain that this is why she helped take care of her dad Jimmy for so long through his Parkinson's even though she claims he always treated her older sister Rosemary better than her. But looking back, it's clear that family was not the most important thing to Teresa. She would just frame it this way to her kids, to coerce them into thinking their life was normal, and to trick them into believing she loved them, so that they would remain loyal to her and keep their family secrets in the family. The youngest of the siblings, Terry, remembers a time that Teresa went to parent-teacher conferences at the school, and when the teacher comes up to meet Teresa, she's like, oh, you're Terry's mom. I've heard so much about you. And Teresa assumes that Terry had been telling her teacher about their home life. Terry had not said anything negative to her teacher. But when Teresa returns home, she locks Terry into the deep freezer. Teresa would usually enlist the help of her other children while abusing one of them. So she makes all the other kids sit on top of the freezer to keep her from escaping until Teresa said she could get out. The children would comply to holding each other down or helping Teresa because otherwise they would be the ones being beaten. As long as they helped, Teresa would usually focus on the one child she was going for in that moment. While her sons were only abused as punishment for behavior she deemed unacceptable, her daughters never knew when to expect their mother's rage. She loved her sons, but she despised her daughters. They would be beaten for absolutely no reason. Not that there is ever a reason for abusing a child, but in Teresa's mind, she had reason with her sons, but she did not need any reason to hurt her girls. 
Terry even had a gun pushed up against her head by Teresa once, who told her that she's shot once and can shoot again. The gun was pressed so hard on Terry's skin that a mark was left there for days. Another time, Terry had reported to her school that another girl had confided in her that she was being abused at home. Terry was like the leader in this group at school, so she felt like she needed to help this girl, even though she was also being abused at home herself. Well, when that girl's mom gets wind of Terry reporting her, she follows Terry home from school and starts yelling at her in the front yard. Soon enough, she's beating Terry up. So obviously, this little girl was telling Terry the truth at school. She was being abused. Her mom is now literally beating up another minor in daylight in public. So Teresa is actually watching out the front window and she does not try to help Terry. Instead, she calls down her oldest son, Howard, and she tells him to go help his sister. When Terry is freed from the grips of this maniac, she comes inside only to be berated by Teresa and told not to get involved with things outside of their family. Teresa doesn't want the attention being drawn to their family. Later, Teresa does feel bad about not helping Terry, so she pawns one of her rings and she buys Terry some new clothes as an apology. She would often do things like this. Following the abuse, she would apologize in her own way to the kids by acting nice for a moment, but those moments never lasted and they were few and far between. By this point in her life, Teresa is barely working. She had hurt her back while working as a nursing aide because one patient came after her and the physical altercation does not do her body well. So after this, she starts gaining a lot of weight. Remember from earlier how I mentioned that Teresa hated her changing looks with each pregnancy? Well, as she grows older and heavier at the same time that her daughters are growing older and maturing into women, she starts to become very jealous of them. This plays into the hatred she has for them. Teresa became more and more controlling of her children as they would grow. She would time them whenever they were out of the house. And if they were just a few minutes late from school or a few minutes behind on how long she thought it should take at the store, she would beat them. In fact, on the way home from school one day, Terry was followed by a group of boys. In a nearby field, two boys hold her down while one boy rapes her. She came home visibly shaken and roughed up. She's dirty, she's crying, and Teresa is throwing a fit about her being late, so Terry tells her what happened. But this only made her mom more mad. She called Terry a liar, and she said that even if it was true, it must have been Terry's fault for being, quote, such a slut. Teresa is a vile piece of trash, clearly. So, Robert and Terry, they're the youngest children, and through elementary school, they had actually changed schools three times by the time they land at Palisades Elementary. The kids were constantly missing school, and the nurse was noticing injuries on them. She tells the kids one day that they need to stay after school for a meeting with her and other school administrators. They don't want to be in trouble, so they rush out of school quickly when the bell rings and they go home to tell their mom what's going on. The nurse even comes to the home after school and she knocks on the door while Teresa and her kids hide out inside, refusing to answer the door. Teresa and her kids would never answer the door because it was usually an unwanted visit from bill collectors or people questioning Teresa's parenting. 
Following this incident, she simply keeps her kids home from school for a few days before sending them back. The questions about this family were never brought forward again. It was all dropped. William, he was one of Teresa's favorite children. I mean, first off, he was a son, but he was also very handsome. Teresa loved him because he looked just like his dad, Bob Knorr. He refused to hit his sisters, but he does admit that he would often hold them down because it was usually us or them. In this house, you were fighting for your own life. William was never violent. Instead, he used his anger to fuel his athletics. His older brother, Howard, was violent, though. Terry said her oldest sibling had always been a control freak. Howard would even say himself that he hates monsters. So it sucks to realize that you are one. Sadly, he was a product of his environment. As the oldest, he was the first to be instructed to hold down his other siblings. But he didn't grow out of his abusive tendencies in adulthood, at least not in early adulthood. When Terry is six years old, she is sodomized by her oldest brother. Soon, Teresa finds out that Howard had been sexually abusing all five of his younger siblings while she had been working. He would pinch his little sister's nipples, leaving marks behind, and he once ordered the youngest brother, Robert, to rape Susan, who was Howard's younger sister, but Robert's older sister. Robert refused, so Howard raped Susan in front of him instead. Upon finding all of this out, Teresa hits Howard, but then she sits all the children down for a little family meeting, and she excuses all of his behavior by telling them that the reason Howard is doing these things to them is because their dad, Bob Knorr, which would be Howard's stepdad, actually raped Howard as a child. So this was a learned behavior. Now, I don't believe this is true, although I did not read any evidence to convince me either way. This is just something Teresa told her kids. So Teresa goes on to say that Bob's family was involved with witchcraft and they must have put a spell onto Howard and that's what was making him act this way. So Howard never faced repercussions for the abuse he perpetrated onto his siblings. By 14 years old, he was heavy into hard drugs, which he was also bringing into the home to his siblings. He would help Robert do drugs by the time he's only seven years old. And Teresa basically knew that her son was doing drugs and selling drugs within her home. In fact, she instructs Howard to give his younger sister Sheila some meth. Remember, Sheila is the one Teresa was pregnant with when she shot Sheila and Howard's dad, Clifford. She always had this rage directed at Sheila. She's the little girl whose head was shaved and cut up before going to live with the Works family for a year. And like I stated earlier, Sheila had some sort of mental delay. She wasn't disabled, but just a little behind. This was likely due to the abuse and neglect she suffered. Sheila had been beaten her entire life since she was a toddler. And by the time she is school age, she didn't speak ever, not unless she was spoken to first. Because of this, Sheila was treated like the family maid. She was Bob Knorr's stepdaughter, and he said that she had severe manic depression when he was in the family, which resulted in the attitude of, why should I even try? I'm sure that this stemmed from years of trying, but continuing to be beaten, unloved, and neglected. 
Teresa was always getting frustrated because Sheila took a long time to get her chores done. Teresa kept a spotless home and this was done through forcing her kids to clean day in and day out and they knew if it wasn't perfect that they would face harsh consequences. So the reason Teresa wants Howard to give Sheila meth is because maybe she would actually do her housework faster. But it does the opposite. Instead, Sheila lays onto the floor and she sleeps through the high. Her siblings aren't sure if it really made her tired or if she did it to defy her mom. Either way, it kept Teresa from having Howard inject his sister with any more drugs. Teresa was always able to claim Sheila as disabled and receive disability checks from the state. Teresa really wanted to like play this angle. So she would coach Sheila on how to respond to the questions she's asked when she would go in and like have an interview or, you know, get this checkup. And she would purposely smear feces in Sheila's hair to make her look dirty. And it worked. And while Teresa was always scared that a state worker might check up on Sheila in the home, that never happens. So by June of 1983, Howard starts dating Connie Butler, and she moves in with the family for a little bit. She had always heard about Howard's family from him, of course, and especially about Susan. Teresa had convinced her kids that Susan was a witch, possessed by a demon. She even tells Connie to ignore her second daughter because she's crazy, and they just needed to have her committed to a mental institution. Remember, Susan is the daughter that was extremely intelligent. This actually seems to be why Teresa would start targeting her. She was growing older, and she was smart enough to realize that their home life was not normal. As Connie lived in the home with Howard, she got the sense that it was Teresa who was the crazy one. She witnessed the kids scrubbing down the house like their life depended on it, but Susan didn't seem demented. She seemed tortured. One day, the doorbell rings and Teresa looks at Connie, quickly asking her to answer it. She's like, look, it's probably a bill collector, so just tell them you're a new tenant. You don't know who I am. Well, it isn't the bill collector at the door. It's actually Bob Knorr, and he's asking to see his children. He sadly walks away that day, wondering where Teresa took his kids, since he is told this is a new tenant, and now he thinks he has no idea where his children are. He doesn't know. They're just being hidden from him inside. So in this neighborhood they're living in at this time, Howard had been a nuisance. He would be in the backyard yielding a gun and just shooting it randomly. Their backyard neighbor has a daughter who Howard scared terribly whenever she was outside. So her mom asked Howard to please be careful with that gun and stop shooting it everywhere. But he laughs in her face and he refuses to stop. Well, this neighbor just happens to be close friends with a member of the Hells Angels. So the gang actually shows up on the lawn and demands that the family leave. This attention scared Teresa enough that she actually sells this home to Connie's parents and she moves into an apartment on Auburn Boulevard, still there in Sacramento, California. Howard and Connie stay behind. I don't think Connie wanted to be around Teresa anymore. Her out there ideas put Connie on edge. She worried for Susan, who she deemed to be a witch, because Teresa told Connie that a witch reaches their full power at age 18, and she didn't think she could let Susan reach that age. So 
that's scary. And Teresa had started thinking Susan was involved in witchcraft because she had been so close with her fourth husband, Chet. Weird to think that this is because of witchcraft instead of him literally grooming your child as a predator, but Susan starts to play into her mom's theories. I'm not sure if Susan actually believed she was a witch. I'm not sure if she was convinced of this by her mom or if she was just trying to make her mom suffer with this obsession. I'd like to think it was the latter, that this was Susan's way of getting back at Teresa. She wasn't being clearly defiant, so she wouldn't necessarily be beaten for it, but Teresa actually believed these things to be true, so Susan was likely driving her mom even more crazy by leaning into it. Her brothers and sisters were also never sure if Susan was being serious or not. So Susan is like, yep, I'm a witch. In fact, Chet was getting me ready to join his witch coven. And once I was in, he would task me with initiating my sisters. Later, while Sheila and Susan are doing William's paper route for him, they come across a bunch of things their neighbors had thrown out. The girls were super tight, so they were always together. Sheila was just three years older than Susan, and they had bonded to each other since they really had no one else. The girls brought home old appliances and clothes, and they knew their mom would love this because she would reuse anything that saved her a buck. But as Teresa is going through the items, she comes across the Book of Mormon. This is a scripture that the Mormon church uses for its teachings alongside the Bible. And if you've caught on through some of the episodes, we've mentioned that my mom, our co-host, is actually Mormon. I grew up in the religion as well. I mean, we're from Utah and Idaho, the two states that are heavily populated Mormons. So what can you expect? (laughs) Now, although organized religion is not my thing now that I'm an adult, I can still respect how others want to live their lives, right? Like we all just need to live and let live. Anyway, so religious or not religious, do your thing. And while the LDS church is not my thing, I can say from my experience, it's super familiar, like similar to other religions like the Catholic church or the Baptist church or any Christian church. Obviously, they all have their own beliefs. I'm not saying they all believe the same thing, so don't come for me. I'm just putting it out there that the Mormon church is not like any weirder than any other religion. It's not like a weird cult thing. And that is coming from me, someone who has left the church. And I'm saying this for a reason that ties into this incident between Teresa and Susan. Anyway, while it is definitely not for everyone, there is a good emphasis on charity and family. You have free will. You can make your own choices. If your family isn't crazy, they're not going to disown you if you don't go to church or you have an arm full of tattoos like I do. But to be clear, I'm not talking about the fundamentalist church here. A lot of people get those two confused. The fundamentalist church is the one that follows pedophile Warren Jeffs and believes in polygamy with underage girls. That's the FLDS church. And the two often get butched together under the word Mormon. So no, that one, that one's definitely a cult. And I don't even know if they use the Book of Mormon like for their teachings or if they use something else. I don't know. I'm saying all of this because Teresa finds this Book of Mormon and she flies into a rage. She says that this book is the work of the devil. It's evil. And the only reason Susan came across it is because she's a witch that had sold her soul to Chet Harris. 
She can't believe that Susan would bring this demonic book home to taunt her with it. Teresa just knows that this Book of Mormon is full of stories about a bunch of witches. So Teresa starts a fire and burns the book to ashes. Which like really, Teresa, it's not that big of a deal. Just throw it in the garbage and don't teach it to your kids if you don't like it. And it's also not about witches, but Teresa had her mind made up. Honestly, Susan probably didn't even know what it was. It probably just looked like scripture and she likely thought her mom would enjoy it because Teresa loved reading her Bible. Ironic, right? Since she's like such a piece of shit. Anyway, when Teresa moves herself and her and five of her kids out of the home she sold to Connie's parents and into the apartment, she enlists the help of Rosemary's husband, Floyd Norris. Teresa had always shunned Rosemary. She was jealous of her older sister's success. All these years, Rosemary had maintained the relationship with her husband and father of her children, and she maintained a well-run household. Rosemary worked hard and, and advanced in her career regardless of a lack of education. Rosemary beat the odds, unlike Teresa and their older brother, William. Remember how Rosemary had a son the day after Teresa gave birth to Howard? Well, when Rosemary's oldest son was 16 years old, he unexpectedly dies. Their dad, Jimmy Cross, was living in a nursing home by this point, and Teresa hadn't spoken to either of them for a long time. But her nephew's funeral brought them all back together. However, Teresa didn't really feel sad for her sister's loss. She absolutely lacked the empathy to care. So fast forward to Floyd helping Teresa move. She doesn't really care that him and her sister are having problems in their marriage at this time. She just doesn't want to do all of the work of moving out and into another home. She doesn't want to do all of that by herself. So just before this, Rosemary had confided in Teresa that she was struggling with Floyd since her oldest son's death. She desperately wanted another baby because she missed her son Joey so badly. But after she suffers a miscarriage, Rosemary tells Teresa that she's pretty sure Floyd is having an affair. She wasn't sure what to do. It's her life that's falling apart now. I'm sure Teresa took some sick pleasure out of hearing this which is sad because in November of 1983, a man walking his dog discovers the deceased body of Rosemary Norris. Teresa is notified that Floyd had identified her sister. Rosemary died of strangulation just before her 40th birthday. And while Floyd looked suspicious, he was never arrested. He doesn't cry at her funeral and in the investigation, there are no signs of sexual assault on Rosemary's body. There are no signs of a break-in at the couple's home. But Floyd tells police he was out of town when she died, and they just roll with it. He was able to collect money from four life insurance policies he had taken out on Rosemary, and he sells her home in California to move to Reno, Nevada. Rosemary's homicide was never solved. This makes me think about how unlikely it is to have this much devastation in one family. Like, honestly, it was probably a good thing that their mother, Swanee, didn't have to see two of her children become murderers and then for one of them to be murdered. I feel bad for Jimmy as he did have to see his daughter, Rosemary, be killed far too young. No parent should bury their children. 
but at least William was his stepson and hopefully he was able to just disconnect once he learns of the brutal murder he committed. And then Jimmy dies before Teresa is caught for the murders of her children. Following Rosemary's murder, Susan would taunt Teresa, telling her that it was a sacrifice killing done by witches. Obviously, this is not true. And again, I think Susan just wants to watch her mom spiral. There was a time when Teresa's waterbed like is leaking and this is causing mold to grow. But Teresa didn't see it as her waterbed leaking and this was a problem. She saw that Susan was the problem. The waterbed was just doomed because Susan had slept there once. So Teresa does the logical thing and just asks the Baptist church if they can perform an exorcism. Super weird ask because the Baptist church didn't really perform exorcisms and they also didn't think Susan was possessed. So they're like, no. After this, word spreads among the congregation and some of the members start to believe that the family might be evil and they're not really bringing good juju to the church. I guess a bunch of bad things started happening after Teresa asks for this exorcism and ultimately the church actually kicks them out. But Teresa wasn't so quick to give up on this idea of exorcism. One night, she gathers up all of her children in the middle of the night. She is literally waking them out of a dead sleep. She brings them downstairs to the living room where she tells them to sit in a circle. They weren't allowed to talk. They weren't allowed to fall asleep. And the exorcism ensues. Sheila is crying. Terry is saying that she sees ghosts. William is mumbling nonsense. And Robert, well, he falls asleep. But Teresa slaps him awake, claiming that he was talking about Teresa dying of an aneurysm, and he said he would dance on her grave. She also says that lights and voices during the exorcism confirmed to her that her children were possessed. Well, she freaked herself out with all of this do-it-yourself exorcism stuff, and she says she had a vision Howard was going to kill her with a gun, so she actually leaves the next day. Her children are left alone, and she stays at a hotel for three whole days. While this would normally be worrisome for children to be alone for days at a time, I'm sure they were all relieved to be away from their mom and just have some peace. When she returns, she tells her children she was stalked while she was away and that random people on the streets were telling her to read the Bible. And she also says that Red Eyes watched her from a vent in her hotel room. So she's going like cuckoo nutbag at this point. She's starting to remind me of Lori Daybell with these ideas. With that, I'm going to end here and release part two, Don't Worry, tomorrow. I'm not going to leave you guys hanging on this one. I will release this part two within a day of this episode dropping so that you can finish this case right away. We've honestly only scratched the surface here. So, you know, we've just gotten into what really has led to these murders. Part two will be pretty difficult because it gets gruesome to hear about the two murders Teresa commits and what her other children were forced to participate in. It will always blow my mind. A mother this evil is beyond my comprehension. So be prepared for that and I will see you soon in part two. (music) 
Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kayla Waters, and we did not have a co-host today. So go follow us on all our social media. You can find us on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter, and head over to part two to get the rest of this case. At the end of that episode, we'll have an organization ready for you that you can get involved with, and Charlie Waters will give us a special palate cleanser.